you're in charge of you're choosing your own adventure here, right? It's not your manager. It's not who you're reporting to, to sort of shape that trajectory of your career. I think you've got to have some self-awareness to, to understand what you're passionate about. Like if you want to go deeper in certain aspects or you're more prone to, to want to go wide, but look for opportunities and get explicit with the folks you report to and look, try to make your own opportunities to, to grow. I think grow is the, the key word there right? You, if you feel like you have a handle on the job you're currently doing, you probably have been doing it too long and need to find, you know, whether it's at the same company or somewhere else, find other opportunities. I'm going to stretch you a little bit. I think there's a certain degree of healthy discomfort that should come with, with growth. Hello, and welcome to Developer's Journey, the podcast bringing you the making of stories of successful software developers to help you on your upcoming journey. I'm your host, Tim Bourguignon. On this episode 213, I receive Wynne Netherland. Wynne is a director of engineering at Adobe Creative Cloud. On his technical leadership journey, he has tacked back and forth between roles as a hands-on individual contributor, manager, and executive. Wynne co-created the Changelog podcast back in, wow, 2009 as an outlet to discover projects and share ideas around the creative explosion happening on GitHub. And with an interest in well-designed APIs and a love of Ruby, he created or contributed to many popular Ruby API wrappers for Twitter, LinkedIn, and GitHub. And uh, if you don't know him from the changelog, and, and you should, you might have seen his work via the Octokit gem he created, and which to date and I checked, has had over 130 million downloads, which is huge. Win, welcome, Dev Journey. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my very pleasure. But before we come to your story, I want to thank the terrific listeners who support the show every month. You are keeping the Dev Journey lights up. If you would like to join this fine crew and help me spend more time on finding phenomenal guests than editing audio tracks, please go to our website devjourney.info and click on the support me on Patreon button. Even the smallest contributions are giant steps toward a sustainable dev journey. Journey? Thank you. And now back to today's guest. Uh, so when, as you know, the show exists to help the listeners understand what your story looked like and imagine how to shape their own future. So as is usual on the show, let's go back to your beginnings. Where would you place the start of your dev journey? Um, Started my dev journey, probably having an Atari computer back in the 80s, being a child of the 80s. I was big into video games, and it was the first time I realized you could tell them what to do via programming instructions. My older brother was taking a basic course in high school, and so I would rework his homework uh, to see if I could get the same answers and put something on the screen. And simple things like 10, print, win, 20, go to 10, that sort of thing. Probably where I would ground it. I think seriously, though, as far as getting into what I would call programming, I don't have a computer science background. In college, I was studying pre-law. My brother was a medical doctor, and I didn't like blood or pain. So I thought, well, you know, law would probably pay just as well at the time. So I thought I was going to go into pre-law. Uh, a friend of mine in ROTC handed me a printed out spec of the HTML3 spec, I think it was at the time, and in a binder form and said, uh, <laughs> check this out. So I started making websites and he and I went into business together in college and started making 
websites for uh, businesses around town. Our college is located just up the road from Walmart's corporate headquarters. And so at the time, a lot of brands were moving into the Bentonville, Arkansas area because they needed a presence there for Walmart. And so there was this influx of companies coming into the area right at the time the public internet was kind of taking off in the mid 90s. And so we were just in the right place at the right time to start making static websites for folks that needed a web presence. And it was an interesting uh, time to, to be in web development because you would have designers that were coming from a print background asking for a particular Pantone shade of blue. And you'd have to explain <laughs> to them that, you know, the Venn intersection between Netscape and Internet Explorer gave you 216 colors max. So which of these, you know, 10 blues do you want? That sort of thing. So yeah, that's where I really discovered that there was a paying future for me in development. But at the same time, I was had just barely dipped my toe into, I wouldn't even call it engineering at the time, it was development. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, the moment in time where, where this side activity eclipsed the, the preload and they said, oh, this is gone. I, I'm going out the road now. It was right about the time I wrapped up my fourth year of school that I just knew that you know, my immediate goal was just to get a paying job in the industry, right? It was not you know climbing the corporate ladder or anything like that. It was just like, I can't believe there are people that get paid to tell a computer what to do all day. I have since found out there's much more to the job than that, right? The people <laughs> are the actual problems. But as far as like doing hands-on creative work on a computer, that was kind of the turning point, probably the last year of school. Uh, so that led to, I got a job at the local paper uh, as an assistant webmaster. And mm-hmm. so I, I, it sounded big at the time. I, I found out that the difference between a webmaster and assistant webmaster, the webmaster is responsible for the layout of the site. The HTML, the CSS is, you know, as raw as it was back in the day, we're probably still using table-based layouts for everything. <laughs> the assistant webmaster had the, the job of c- copying and pasting out of Quark and into Adobe Go Live every night. <laughs> so <laughs> I got into server-side programming to really automate that work because it's like, this is a lot of mundane, just tedious copy paste work. So it was an all Mac print shop and I smuggled in my own NEC mini tower PC and learned ASP while I was waiting for the print deadlines. Cause we had like a 3 PM to midnight shift every night waiting for the paper to, to go to print. So there was some downtime while you're waiting on the editorial desk to get done. And so I was using that downtime to, to learn the trade <laughs> the good old days i remember exactly that time that pretty much the time when i when it came out of high school and i, I visited a couple of companies and, and to try and see what, what do you do as a webmaster what's what's the job and really so people playing around with playing around that, that's that, that's revealing <laughs> playing around with with computers with uh, as you say table layouts and graphics etc mm-hmm. and i was like ooh. I want to do that. How'd you learn this? And and the guys look at me and say, there's no school to teach this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to learn it on your own. I said, ooh, okay. <laughs> no, no, it's getting funny. So did you, did you have at some point in, in this time frame the, uh, the, the, the question in your mind, do I need to go study for that? Or it was you had enough baggage already to say, okay, I, I'll wing it. I'll, I'll go for it. You know, I was considering it. I was looking at... You know, switching gears in, in school, the, the disconnect for me at the time, and I think it took a while for, you, you mentioned, you know, there's nowhere to study for this. And it took some time before the curriculum's caught up, right? Mm-hmm. At the time, I'm looking at the computer engineering and computer science 
courses that I could take at the university. And they just, they were, I could tell even as a, a newbie, they were outdated, right? There was nothing that was going to prepare me for a job other than just basic data structures and, you know, the computer science side of things. But as far as hands-on skills to be immediately productive in a, in an environment, uh, where development was the you know the main discipline, it was going to take some time to to acquire those skills, and school probably was not going to be the best route for me. I fortunately got caught up in sort of the dot com boom, right? In the late nineties, anyone that you know could run Excel was getting a job in the field. I was working at the paper when I think I was watching probably a, a live stream of a, a ball game on broadcast.com or something back in the day and saw a, a job ad for a job in Texas for ASP developers. And so I applied online and ended up doing a phone screen. And I still remember having, I don't know if you remember the brand, the Rocks um, technical brand. It was, I think they're still around. There's it's a red cover with yellow letters and usually has the author's pictures in black and white. There was a whole series of, of these technical books and I had the ASP 3.0 book in my lap during the the phone screen answering some of these questions. So sort of <laughs> like r- actually faking until I made it. Uh, and so that was fun. I got the job. It ended up being a, a contract job uh, in another state. And so moved to, to Houston and was the only developer attached to a networking tech group that was basically they were running cable and setting up networks and just a lot of MCSEs, I think was the, the four-letter acronym back in the day. So they thought I had, was you know wielding dark arts by being able to script a lot of the things that they were doing manually. And I just, I was still learning on the job. Cool. And this was as ASP or was it? Was ASP it- script. Yeah. Okay. This was before ASP.net. It was the uh, ASP mm-hmm. classic. They called yeah, it. Classic, yeah. Cool, 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 cool. And how, how long did that keep you challenged and energized? I don't know that it was, you know, I don't, early in my career, I was probably just soaking up anything tech related that I could. I I was still in the Microsoft platform for probably the first three or four years of my career, shifting gears from that that company that I worked for to Compaq, if you remember Compaq Computer. Mm-hmm. Landed at Compaq, I'm old so, enough to remember, yes. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I, I have coworkers now that don't know the name, so I'm yeah. dating myself. But, so it was at Compaq and later HP when HP uh, acquired Compaq. So that was a fun job it was, as far as kind of pioneering e-commerce at the time. We take it for granted now with Amazon and and anything that you want to buy is like two clicks away now on your phone. But back then, I mean, it was it was sort of the wild west of taking credit card numbers and how do you secure all that and and take someone's money and send them a physical product was was not, you know, a guaranteed thing back then. So we were trying to pioneer how we sold and configured computer hardware online. So that was it was an interesting challenge because a lot of what we would stitch together with SaaS these days or open source wasn't the case back then. It was a very proprietary world. The breadth of information that I think is available at anyone's fingertips these days to approach a problem and and come in a number of solutions just didn't exist back then. It was very team oriented and and localized. Mm -hmm. So you were not 
alone anymore doing dark arts scripting. No, I, I guess I found my tribe, found a team of folks to, uh, to work together. I think that's uh, maybe the takeaway of that part of my career is instead of being uh, kind of the, the lone wolf trying to figure out things on my own, I now found, oh, there's other folks that are interested in this. And I'm not, you know, the black sheep in my family that's the, the nerd <laughs> of the computer all the time, right? But was it was the first time uh, you working really with a team? And you, you mentioned it's this uh, this uh, student you worked with at the beginning and then this, this first job. Yeah, it was. I guess I'm just now reflecting on it. It was probably the first time that I worked together in a team solving problems together and trying to break things down and considering other viewpoints instead of someone asking me how I would solve it and going off and doing my best to, to hack together a solution. So yeah, that was probably the, the inflection point for looking back where I started developing you know, an interest in not only the technical content of the work, but also how do you, what's a high performing team look like? Because There was a lot of dysfunction in that team as well. You know, we did some really cool things, but there's a lot of, you know, any of the anti-patterns that you would see on, you know, The Office or Silicon Valley or other TV shows existed in that that team as well. <laughs> Where doesn't it? Right. <laughs> we all look at these shows and say, oh, they are so dumb. And say, oh, God, we're doing half of this. Did you have an idea of what your future might look like back then or, or dream of how it, it should look like? You know, it was a different time. I, there was still this, this is too good to be true type of, I guess, mindset. I don't know if it was for me personally. I, I know it permeated a lot of the folks that I was on the team with because back in the early 2000s, I mentioned I got caught up in the draft of the dot-com boom, but then it was followed by the dot-com bust. And there was this nagging feeling as a, as a well-paid engineer in the States that your job may go overseas. Mm -hmm. Right. There was, especially if you worked for a multinational company like I did at the time, and my job became less and less about the hands-on creative work, more about architecture and drawing pictures of how things should work. And more and more of my time was spent talking to folks in other time zones, you know, trying to get feedback on, on the design and how they were building it. So I felt more and more separated from what got me into the field to begin with, which was that instant feedback loop of hitting save and hitting refresh and seeing something change on the screen. That was the exciting part for me. And, you know, as the job became more and more grounded in Microsoft Office drawing pictures of things, it's just, I kind of lost my, the thrill was gone in some, some ways. It ebbed and flowed. I mean, .NET was exciting when it came out and they had some interesting takes on how to do UI design. I wrote a couple of books during that time just as a way to kind of catalog what I was learning on the platform at the same time. But a lot of what .NET was doing, at least on the web, was sort of against the grain of how the web works with how they were doing view state and, and some other things. Uh, it was about that time that uh, a coworker of mine had introduced me to the Ruby and Rails, how to build a blog in 15 minutes podcast that DHH did way back in the day. And I, it was one of those things where I kind of got tired of hearing about it because I was you know, perfectly happy in my .NET world at the, at the time, excuse me. And on a weekend, I decided to dig into it. You know, the more I dug, the more I was um, intrigued and decided to rebuild one of the apps that we had in .NET just to kind of like given a, a problem domain that I knew, how how could I learn the tech without having to also learn the problem domain at the same time and was just blown away by how quickly I could recreate the website 
and Ruby and Rails and sort of drunk the Ruby and Rails Kool-Aid and kind of made the shift to, to, to Linux and open source and kind of changed my entire posture as an engineer from proprietary, proprietary.net to open source and, and Ruby on Rails. And so sort of got disenchanted with my day job at the time and just really wanted the opportunity to, you know, early in my career, I just wanted to get paid to do computing for a living, right? And now I really wanted to get paid to do the sorts of projects I wanted to work on, which were less and less about big e-commerce websites and more about just building Camilla things for startups. And so uh, a side hustle turned into another business. I ended up leaving my employer and founding a company with the same college buddy that uh, we got into uh, web development back in college with and another coworker. And we did Rails consulting for a few years and during kind of the web 2.0 boom and kind of rode that wave. And that was fun. And I enjoyed the consulting aspect of there was always a new problem domain for every customer. I mean, the, the toolkit was the same as far as Ruby and Rails and, and what it provided, but the problems you were solving were different. And I felt that was exciting in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you, uh, did you, I want to say cope, but that's probably not the right word. Adapt to the this this being a founder. So basically, you still have your job coding, but there's a whole new uh, can of worms that falls in your lap, and you have to <laughs> to tackle that one as well. Absolutely, you're and especially if you're in, in consulting, it's it's a little different if you're in a startup and you've got a product that you're trying to get to market and find product market fit. But as a as a consultant, there's this this constant, you're hunting the next project while you're building the current project. And it can get exhausting, especially mm -hmm. if you're, in my case, I was you know, leading the tech side of the business, but at the same time, you have to be in sales calls to, you know, to close those deals, to convey that you, the company has the wherewithal to, to be able to solve the problems that folks are bringing to you. And so, yeah, it, it can get exhausting. You're wearing a lot of hats. And I think the, the smaller the company, regardless of your role in the company, the more hats folks have to wear and the more, mm -hmm. I think, uh, a generalist you have to be. And that's, I guess, that's sort of been my specialization across 25 years of doing this has been as a generalist, right? I would describe myself as T-shaped. There's certain aspects of my skill set that, that go deeper, but for the most part, I understand a little about a lot of things. And so I can talk and bridge communities and, and talk to folks and connect dots, I think is a skill that I've learned and uh, honed that, yeah, in, in the consulting phase of my career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so you're a specialized generalist, uh, we'll, we'll say. Yeah, I think that's, and I've come to accept that. I think I would have probably bristled at that description 15 years ago, but now I kind of wear it proudly. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not as deep in, technical as a lot of the folks that uh, I work with or even lead, but that's okay because I can connect the dots and, you know, the, the sum is greater than the whole. Mm -hmm. I, I don't shy away from this description. I mean, if, if, if you use the term generalist to, to say you're not a specialist, then, then there's a negative connotation, but if yeah. you wear it proudly and really go, go really, really wide and really can connect dots in, in very different fields, silos, aspects, there, there's a bonus added to that. So mm -hmm. that, that, that's all good. Coming back to, you said before, we're drifting toward more architecture, more drawing boxes and less coding. And this affected your, your interest, your energy and, and your, your, your happiness with your job. This is my words, not yours, but that's what mm -hmm. I understood. How did this, being more an entrepreneur and having a part-time uh, business hat 
in uh, affect this part of your of your happiness? Was it the same? Was it different? I think I found a certain satisfaction in it. I think my goals in starting a company, like I said previously, were to create an outlet that I could work within the framework of the business to approach this the stack that I wanted to work on and the problems that I wanted to work on and, the, and do the projects that I wanted to work on. So in that, in some regards, it, you know, I was able to create space for that. And I felt a certain satisfaction in, in working on the business as much as working in the business. I don't know that, you know, it, at the same time, like we all age and we're not the same people we were last year, 10 years ago. And so part of that was just, I think, maturing and, and finding, there is a certain level of satisfaction in doing different types of tasks that aren't the same. What once brought you joy is probably not going to bring you joy forever. There's got to be some mm-hmm. sort of like you know, wonder and and going a level deeper and, and growth and, and trying to discover what what there is to be learned as far as part of that process. So I don't know that it was maybe a sideways move in some ways. In that sort of role, you really can't give all of yourself to either technical direction or to growing the business, right? And that's a, a tension that's always there. And at some point, you know, you've got to step out of one of those roles and, and delegate the other one if you're going to do it well. And that's it's really the struggle for, you know, I've known, I've met a lot of friends that have done software consulting and and burned out for that very reason, right? It's just, mm-hmm. there's really, it's hard to reach that X velocity to, to grow a sizable consultant company that can stick around because it really is dependent upon next month's billables, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, so you kept at it for nine years, if I read correctly? Is that- we, let me think, spent 25 years <laughs> in the industry and trying to remember <laughs> all the timelines. So I guess we were... I still have, uh, you know, a couple of companies that uh, I use just for um, book writing and publishing and that sort of thing. But as far as the the consultancy here that I'm referring, it was about a three year run that we had from, oh. I guess, 2007 to probably around 2010, if I remember the timeline correctly. Mm-hmm. And things sort of dried up, dried up. You can probably catch the the business cycle sort of undertones of of my story. Things started drying up after the the big financial meltdown of the late. Uh, 2000s. And I was getting burned out. And I got a job, a a call from my previous boss at uh, Hewlett Packard. And when I had left, I mean, I thought I was done with like very large corporations, especially multinational corporations where, you know, you're fighting the bureaucracy as much as you are your tools. And he said, Hey, uh, you know, we're building up a brand new business unit. It's, you know, sort of an incubated business within a business and we're going to be doing Ruby on Rails. That's already decided you can recruit your own team and you can work remotely. And that was the other big driver for me leaving uh, Hewlett Packard the first time is I wanted to work remotely. It made no sense for me to commute, to sit in a cube, to talk to another continent all day long, right? It just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so the remote aspect of it was a, a big driver. And I think, you know, now as we're coming out of the pandemic, everyone's, you know, got a different appreciation for remote work because we all did it for, for so long. But for those of, of us that have done it for a while, back then, I mean, it was a big, big draw because it provided flexibility for me and my family to to not waste uh, two hours a day commuting uh, into the city to work. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. I worked there for about a year until the new technical 
CEO or CTO rather decided to completely change the stack from Ruby on Rails to try to remember the Python based cloud project at the time. It's been so long ago, but completely changed the, the technology. And it was just a good time to, to pursue other opportunities. And about that time, I got the offer to join a small startup that had a charitable flavor to it and that we were building sort of Kickstarter before Kickstarter was what we know as, as it is today, but Kickstarter for charitable projects where folks could, charities could post their projects and, and patrons could back those projects. So that was called Pure Charity. I was there for about a year and was happy there until I got a, I've been doing open source over this time. And even when, I guess the reason I got into open avidly as I did, when I was doing consulting work, we were using a ton of Web 2.0 APIs at the time, everything from Twitter. And then the Twitter ecosystem seemed, I guess, to be, from a developer standpoint, seemed to be bigger back then than it even is today. There was all of this, there was the whole cottage industry of one-off, like Twitter adjacent APIs like Clout and some of these others that were uh, in that same space. And I remember one, it was a Friday afternoon, it was towards the end of the business day. And I just, I was on Twitter and I found my congressman on Twitter. And, you know, I just, I tweeted out, hey, my congressman, Michael Burgess is on Twitter, is yours. And just had this kind of like aha moment. Maybe we could build a website that, that allowed folks to find their congressional representation on Twitter. Because I mean, Twitter was still, this was pre-Oprah Twitter. It was pretty... It wasn't the Twitter you today, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, back then, if you're talking to friends and family about Twitter, they were like, what? And they didn't understand it, right? Uh, to the extent they do now. And I, so I had that idea. We were still using, I think, Campfire at the time for our company chat. And so I just remember putting into in Campfire, hey, I have this idea for a website where, you know, if we, you put in your zip code, you could come up with, you know, if your Congress folks are on Twitter, and if not, then you could recruit them to join and I had a screenshot because I, I gave this talk once where I showed the screenshot, like all this chatter going around my comment from other folks working on projects, like totally ignoring <laughs> the idea. And I still remember writing something like, you know, well, since this is obviously a bad idea, I'm going to go help my wife with, with dinner, right? And signed off for the day. And But I couldn't let the idea go. I found an open API where if you put in your zip code, it did tell you, you know, uh, what your representation was. So that part of was done. So I just kind of mashed together a, a website and I found some stock art, like Capitol Dome and made it look like the, you know, kind of the parch paper constitution aesthetic and called it Tweet Congress. And uh, we put it up and, you know, it started getting more and more popular. There was a, you know, as folks were discovering what Twitter was and then they were, you know, Politicians were starting to, to join, and, and this was a site that kind of was a clearinghouse for tweets from Congress because we would show tweets from, from congressional folks on there. And then the State of the Union, I believe, I'm trying to remember what year this was, there were folks tw live tweeting during the State of the Union. And right, this just became like a cultural moment where um, you know, media started picking up, hey, what's up with this, this Twitter thing? And you know, I guess we were easy, easily Googleable. And I remember getting off a plane coming back from a conference one night and our analytics had just gone off the charts. Like CBS News had featured uh, us in passing and on covering that story and hot linking to us from their, their website. So like traffic started to, to increment up. 
and ended up, we won a, a web award at South by Southwest that year for Tweet Congress, mm. which was pretty cool. So I've got, I don't know, mixed emotions about it because it was, it was a cool idea. I think it was, you know, for where we were in the cultural moment, it was a cool thing to bring together. At the same time, I lament like how many politicians are on Twitter these days. I, I sort of miss the twi- the the pre I don't know pre Oprah Twitter when it felt more mm-hmm. like CB radio, right? Where <laughs> you know it, it's where you connected with people in your tribe around like esoteric technical topics, and it felt I don't know a little bit more like IRC back in the day than than what it is now, which is kind of a feed of of brands and updates. Yeah, I'm 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 disengaging more and more with Twitter. It's it's not what it used to be. It's really too much, too slick, too polished. Uh, yeah, too, no. We're just getting old. That's what it is. That, that might be it. <laughs> Get off my lawn. It was better before. <laughs> okay, so so you were saying uh, this is what took you also more toward working in the open and and working in the open source. Yeah. So I. Wanting to do things with the Twitter API, there were things in the Twitter gem that the API supported that weren't yet in the gem. So I'd start open pull requests and John Noonmaker, who's created the gem, you know, graciously started allowing me to contribute. And so I learned a lot about what makes a good API wrapper doing that. Like I learned more and more about REST kind of from the outside consuming it. And mm-hmm. then like I, I was just fascinated by the different approaches that different Twitter gems took to solving the problem. And what I liked about John's approach was the idiomatic way that he wrapped REST concepts idiomatically in Ruby, where if I'm a Rubyist, I can walk up and understand this and I really don't have to you know, understand all the concepts of REST. I just want to do the workflow that I want to do and I don't have to think through, mm-hmm. is this a put or a patch or a post or any of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so they just got me thinking about how different engineers solved that same problem. I wrote a blog post once comparing like three different Twitter related gems and how they solved it, which were fascinating. Some like the rest semantics came right through the syntax. Others, you never knew you were calling an API at the same at, at that time. And I remember going home Thanksgiving one year, I was on the drive home when I was checking Twitter or something and saw that LinkedIn had come out with their REST API. And I went it like that very night, pretty much took what I knew from John and the Twitter gem and wrote a LinkedIn gem that I maintained for a couple of years before handing that off. And then I guess what really you know, accelerated my open source career was as we started the Changelog podcast, we were wanting to feature the projects directly on the blog and was we moved from just a static uh, website. We're doing all this in JavaScript. We were making you know, JavaScript calls back to the GitHub API and, and pulling back like the number of stars and, and the metadata about the projects. When we went from that to a more dynamic website, it opened up the opportunities to use Ruby. And I looked at the landscape of Ruby wrappers for the GitHub API and they just didn't feel like Ruby. And just mm-hmm. didn't, I, I liked the semantics that we had in, in in the Twitter gem. So I s- created my own project and just started, you know, uh, whittling on it. And it became the OctoKit gem. And I guess fast forward a couple of years later, I'm CTO at this small nonprofit and leading a team of probably, I don't know, 10 folks or so working on something totally unrelated to the open source that I think I was finding a lot of joy in. 
And I get a call uh, or I get an email that says, I'd never, and subject line, I won't forget because it's too funny. It says, would you like to chant with some GitHubers? <laughs> and I was like, this is a little strange. And so I opened it up and it's from someone I don't recognize. And I knew a lot of the folks at GitHub at the time. And I'm not going to name names because I don't want to <laughs> out anyone. But this was, if you knew this person, you, you totally get why this is funny. But the subject line said, would you like to chant with some GitHubers? And I opened it up. And, you know, said, you know, we're interested in, um, are you interested in, in interviewing at GitHub? Well, they just had a security incident probably, I don't know, three or four days earlier, some Rails vulnerability that had allowed folks to get admin access and repositories. This is early GitHub days. And so I just assumed, like, they got hacked and, like, everybody <laughs> got this. So I'm in, like, my work channel going, anybody else get this? Do you want to come work at GitHub email? And they're like, no. It's like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is legit. So... I remember replying, oh, and I, I I looked up, this is back when GitHub had everyone on their blog, you know, so-and-so was a GitHubber, once you joined, everyone got their own little blog post. And so I, I looked up this person on GitHub, and sure enough, it had that post, and it's them sitting on a rock like in a Zen pose, right? And so this is what made me think that, like, I got hacked, because, like, this is, like, the dots connect here. So anyway, I wrote, I replied back, sure, I would like to, and I wrote it as a regex, like with the optional N in there. Sure, I'd like to chant, chat with some GitHubers, right? So anyway, it was a legit offer to, to come interview. And so I, I flew out to San Francisco and, and interviewed. And what blew me away when I was doing my technical pairing session, you know, I got to, you open a pull request on GitHub, GitHub, which is the main monolith. And as the bootstrapping script is running, I see you know, Jim install Octokit and they were using it. I just couldn't believe that someone you know, was using my project to that degree. So that was uh, kind of a, another turning point in my career, to say the least. Wow. It's a nice story as well. <laughs> that, that is really cool. You touched a little bit on the why this this rapper concept really interests you in, and how it matches in the language and the the uh, if you let the REST API bleed into the language or not. But it's, it interests you for years. What's what's so fascinating that it takes ten years of your life, and then that you find a new API and you want to uh, you want to wrap it again and, and again and again? Yeah, I I think I was fascinated by just the boom of interconnectivity that came about with Web 2.0 and this kind of API economy that was so popular at the time. I, I remember early in, in my career, like communicating between systems was almost impossible. I mean, just all the failed attempts of Corba and just <laughs> Calm, <laughs> Calm Plus and all oh. of this like graveyard of projects past where you know we as an industry couldn't get our act together to cooperate in a, a well-defined manner. And then we get things like JSON. It's not perfect, but we have a minimal set of types that we can parse and, and share. And where do you have HTTP? And it's got some nouns that um, are verbs rather that, you know, that work and we can create our own nouns. And, and if you just lean into it, that's, you know, there's a dial tone there that just suddenly we can start connecting dots between websites and we can design an economy around that, which we take for granted now, right? But it was new at the time. And I think that is one of the, the draws for me, and I, you know, I've always enjoyed learning something and then going one level deeper. You know, with just removing the abstraction and trying to understand the, you know, that 
technology to magic continuum, right? And just continue to, to, to go down deeper in the stack. And for me, it was coming from consuming rest on one end and then kind of jumping behind the curtain and understanding when I took the job at GitHub, I was the second API engineer on the team of like, I think there were 70 folks at GitHub at the time and only two of us really cranking on the API full time. And you had to think in every, every time there was a new feature and you're exposing it to consumers, you have to think through what are the nouns here? Mm-hmm. And I think so many engineers typically look at their database structure, the data structure, and you know, those are the nouns and they just expose CRUD APIs, uh, you know, create, read, update, delete. And what, what was the challenge I think was trying to make it workflow driven and not noun driven or just data access driven. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I don't know, I, countless threads on GitHub discussions where an engineer that was building a feature would come and say, Hey, we need to add this into the API so we can allow third parties to call it. You know, what are the semantics here? And you'd have to think through like, what should the error code be in this case? Right. Is it a 422? Is it, you know, 404, that sort of thing. It's it, tricky things like there's, GitHub always had this thing where they would not disclose that something that you did not have access to existed. And so like, you've probably had this like uh, moment of terror on GitHub. If you've logged out and didn't know it and you hit something and it says 404 and like, what happened to my stuff? And then you realize, oh, I got to log in. And then mm-hmm. they'll tell me that, you know, <laughs> and the same thing happens on the, on the API side of things, right? We'll return 404 if you're, if you don't have access to it uh, instead of a 403, if it's not public. So I don't know, just little things like that. It just was an endless series of just design decisions that I've, I found interesting to, to design. And then also scale, right? That was the other thing, you know, GitHub scale. It was the first time that I really was exposed to, you know, the possibilities of testing your code in production. Right. We, I mean, uh, and it sounds funny, but I'm not, I don't mean it as a joke. I'm mean, at a certain scale, a certain network effect, you have enough real time data to AB test things in production and get real instant feedback. So mm-hmm. we had a project called Science that was developed there that allowed us to test two code paths a control group and an experiment group for correctness and latency. And so, it would, you could, with a Ruby block, describe like, here's one code path I want to run, and here's the other one. And it would mostly worked for read paths, of course, but it would run both of them, log the results, and you would continue to tweak your code until you got 100% accuracy, also with the performance rate that you wanted. So it was a really mm-hmm. cool way to not have to do a lot of upfront stress testing of your code. You could just use use production if it's not really critical enough then right. yeah of course of course you can yeah, yeah. Um, have you had the chance to work during this time working on apis with people who didn't come from this extensive consumer perspective that you had and and how you how you you interacted with one another how you completed maybe uh, one another you brought two different pieces of the same puzzle and and collaborate on that yeah, I think there was a lot of folks that I worked with that came from a very technical computer science background that would rightly consider the performance of what they were trying to expose and just the robustness of the feature that they're trying to build and really not really think about the UX of an API. I think that's the other thing that that always I've always 
kind of played in my career at the intersection of development and design. And, you know, I've said before, like user interfaces to me sometimes involve pixels, but a command line interface has also got a certain degree of UX. How approachable is it? Like, do I have to run four subcommands to do this thing? Or, you know, is it like, is it deep or is it broad? That sort of thing. Like how approachable are you making your tool for a human walking up to it? Mm-hmm. And a REST API is one of the things is why we liked Web 2.0, I think, as an industry so much is it on the on the main, we went from fairly large, opaque, almost non-human readable URL structures to these nice segmented, you know, predictable resources, right? Mm-hmm. And a REST API can can do the same thing. If, if you have a certain consistency across your API, instead of it being more RPC-based, which is what a lot of APIs were before REST kind of took over, you know, the RPC, would, there would be one endpoint, and then you just have all these method calls that you could, and there's no, like every website's exposing its own set of verbs in that case. But if you lean into the verbs of REST and expose your nouns, then it becomes a little bit more predictable. I know if I'm going to list something or fetch something, it's going to be a get. If I'm going to update mm-hmm. something or create something, it's going to be a post. If I'm going to update it, it's going to be a put or a patch. Yeah. This is fascinating. I, 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 you, you probably have. What about GraphQL? It's 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 become more and more the thing. How did you approach it as as an interface, as a wrapper person? I was skeptical when it first came out. Uh, I wasn't the one that floated the idea. Our uh, VP of engineering at the time floated the idea at GitHub of rolling out a GraphQL API because uh, I think he'd worked at the NFL where they had done it. They were heavy React and GraphQL, GraphQL shop. And so I was skeptical. I was like, we have a fully functioning API. And there's one of those things, it's one of those things where the, the marketing bullets for something sort of out pace the actual content and, and the marketing bullet that usually folks latch onto for GraphQL is that you don't, you no longer have to overfetch clients can fetch exactly what they want, which is a big selling point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it neglects things like types, right? It neglects things like having a consistent interface, regardless of the implementation behind the GraphQL mm-hmm. API. So, having a consistent set of tooling that if you have a GraphQL API that meets the spec, any GraphQL playground or or front end can hook up to that API and you can discover and, and, and interact with that API in a consistent manner. And you don't have to, I mean, we rest has counterparts to that swagger and some other things that you you can do similar things, but in many ways have been a response to how GraphQL has kind of solved some of those problems. I think types are the biggest thing in a pure REST world without Swagger or other open API specs. You, one of the reasons why wrappers are needed is because you need to marshal that data into a type system that can be consumed on, on the other end. So GraphQL obviates that in some ways. I, I don't know what it is about GraphQL that has been such a good fit for so many projects. I really... You know, it's not a hammer that I picked up when around looking for GraphQL shaped nails, but mm-hmm. you know, I I worked on it a little bit at at GitHub, was leading the teams that were rolling it out, and there's a lot and a lot and a lot of work to, to expose that that API. When I left GitHub, I didn't really expect to work with GraphQL again, but the next project that I I went into at a, a small startup that I had joined 
we had effectively four Rails applications of different versions of Rails, of different versions of Ruby, all thought they owned the database that were kind of multiplexed together with this reverse proxy. And I was looking at it going, okay, I'm sure there's history here. <laughs> you know, startup growing quickly, but like this is madness. And and so I said, why don't we just lean into like one of these backends that provides our REST API, bolt on a GraphQL interface. And for new features, we start threading things through GraphQL and just see where it goes. And it, it just grew like we have a, a weed here in the southeastern United States called Kudzu that was brought over after the the destruction of our civil war that was you know, planted to to green things up. And it just looked, it took over the entire South. Like it just, it, it's now just this pest of a weed and for better, or for worse, GraphQL has grown in, in projects that I've introduced it in, in much the same way, just because you don't have to sit there and rewire the HTTP interfaces. Every time you're exposing a new type to consumers, you basically have that one dial tone. I don't know in many ways that's gone to the other extreme. I was talking about the RPC world. In many ways, GraphQL is RPC with types and like it's provides a consistent interface over something like that. But I, as a meta point, I think that, and I'm sure you discovered this as well, that's the, the thing I've noticed in my career is just all these ebbs and flows between the, the pendulum swings back and forth, right? It's like tapered leg jeans and boot cut, right? It's just, it's going to go back and forth. Um, everything's got to be in the server. Everything's got to be in the client, right? Everything's got to be in REST. Everything's got to be RPC. And the longer you stick around, the more you're just like, okay, well, let's just hang around for the ride because like save those ties. I'm going to need to wear them again in about 15 years. Right. So <laughs> yeah, you see the pattern coming back and say, Oh, we're in for one more time. <laughs> exactly. Um, you talked at the beginning from, uh, of your, your T shape. Is that something that's, I find really hard to, to, grasp at the beginning of your career you're torn between this going broad and really understanding more and more of the landscape while at the same time going deep and mm -hmm. obviously you cannot do both really at the same time but you're torn in the business wants you to go deep or sometimes the business wants you to go wide and yep. you're just you're just uh going the flow and it can explode in in flight mid flight would you have an advice for for newcomers that are dealing with this and not really know where, where to start yeah, just I would encourage folks that, especially early in your career, like you're in charge of, you're choosing your own adventure here, right? It's not your manager. It's not who you're reporting to, to sort of shape that trajectory of your career. I think you've got to have some self-awareness to to understand what you're passionate about. Like if you want to go deeper in certain aspects or you're more prone to, to want to go wide, but look for opportunities and get explicit with the folks you report to and look, try to make your own um, opportunities to, to grow. I think grow is the, the key word there, right? You, if you feel like you have a handle on the job you're currently doing, you probably have been doing it too long and need to find, you know, <laughs> whether it's at the same company or somewhere else, find other opportunities. I'm going to stretch you a little bit. I think there's a certain uh, degree of healthy discomfort that should come with, with growth. <laughs> healthy discomfort i love that <laughs> and that's very true thank you very much uh, we haven't covered uh, a big part of your story but that was fantastic nonetheless thank you very much thanks for having me where would be uh, the best place to find you online and talk about the rest of your career or the one we covered or sure twitter's probably the best place my handle is penguin p-e-n-g-w-y-n-n -N. <laughs> i <laughs> yeah okay echoes of the change log intro probably <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, anything on your plate? Anything you want to, to plug in uh, before calling it, call it today? 
I don't think so. I, you know, I'm at this spot in my career where I'm, I'm probably digging more deeply into uh, high performing teams and, and I'm in a consumption phase right now where I'm reading more than I'm producing. So nothing to plug at the moment, but I'm, I'm liking the spot of my career. What? No book coming up? (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. And first of all, like if you want to write a book, don't do it to get rich. Oh yeah. (laughs) Only write it if you have something to say. (laughs) But but I heard the yet in your in your answer. So I won't rule it out. I won't rule it out. Okay. (laughs) Julie noted. Thank you very much. It's been a blast. Thanks, Tim. And this has been another episode of Diverse Journey, and we see each other next week. Bye. Thanks a lot for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please share, rate, and review. It helps more listeners discover those stories. You can find the links to all the platforms the show appears on on our website, devjourney.info slash subscribe. Creating the show every week takes a lot of time, energy, and of course money. Would you please help me continue bringing out those inspiring stories every week by pledging a small monthly donation? You'll find our Patreon link at devjourney.info slash donate. And finally, don't hesitate to reach out and tell me how this week's story is shaping your future. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Timothep, T-I-M-O-T-H-E-P, or per email, info at devjourney.info. Talk to you soon.